Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW, 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands. So what do you have for us this month, Nathan? Well, Jenny, for the March episode of ArtsLink, I thought I would do something a little bit low-key and uh, give our listeners some ideas of what they can do to play around uh, with some art in their own homes or their backyards, even in this winter season we're in. All right. And I have an interview with Chris Vanessa Teal about her play, with Chromatic Theatre in Calgary. Hi, uh, my name is Jenny Kwong for ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. So I'm here with a guest. What is your name? Um, my name is, my full name is Chris Vanessa Teal Sing Un. Um, I go by Chris. Yeah, hi. <laughs> hi. And so tell me a bit about yourself as an artist. Um, so I am a creator, performer, director, actor, um, and most recently I spent uh, 2019 really uh, developing my skills as a playwright. Um, yeah, so I do a lot of different things, but uh, this year was mostly playwriting, yeah. So your play is called Warden Mings's Give me a chance, what is it about? Um, so it's about finding my place as a Chinese woman uh, in between the two cultures I've been immersed in, um, so in Singapore and in Canada. Um, I, yeah, I, I wrote the show um, as a way to explore my identity and to also... Um, use my experience here in Canada as a minority to understand my complicity in racism in Singapore. Um, yeah. And so uh, when did you live in Singapore? I was in Singapore. So I was born here in Calgary, um, and then I moved to Singapore when I was three, where my parents are from. Uh, and then I was there for 20 years. Um, and then moved back here in 2012. So that was about, yeah, seven and a half years ago. Okay. And so I know you wrote many drafts as a play. So when did you feel you were done? I don't think I am done. <laughs> I feel like um, it's still ongoing. Um, I've Right now, I, I finally do have a production draft. But um, I still think... As I continue to perform it, I'm going to want to edit it more. I've gotten it to a place where I'm comfortable to share it where it's at. Um, but I think uh, as I continue to perform this work, it's going to evolve at the same time, and I'll make edits as I go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so um, I guess uh, uh, why did you want to put your um, Chinese name in your title? Um. I think when, well, when I first moved here, um, I found that all the documentation I have to do, um, so like getting an ID or uh, when you apply for healthcare here, um, they just automatically took my Chinese name out of everything. Um, and it felt like a piece of me was being taken away. Um, it's in all my legal documentation. Like, my Chinese name is uh, in Singapore. So it was... Um, at first, it was um, okay, and I thought it was, like, convenient. But then I... Yeah, I just want to reclaim that piece of me. <laughs> okay. 
And so uh, the setting I remember is at a Singapore food stand. So what's the significance of the setting for you? Um, so in Singapore, food is a big part of the culture. Um, there's many different races that live together. So um, the three main races in Singapore are Chinese, Malay, and Tamil people. Um, and I find that the Hawker Center uh, is where um, people come together. It's how um, I'm sure like in other like Asian cultures, food is how people bond together. Um, I feel like it's the base point of where um, the different cultures meet. Um, what I love about Singapore is that everyone eats everyone else's food. Um, so I grew up eating not just Chinese food, but Malay food, Indian food. And there's like halal versions of Chinese and Indian food for the Muslims to eat. And yeah, it's just a way of bonding and, and gathering. <laughs> How often do you go to an outdoor market or food stand? Um, pr pretty much all the time. It's a big, like, the outdoor, like, hawker centers are, like, everywhere. So it's really convenient. It's also the cheapest way to get food. Like, it's, uh, you could get, like, a bowl of noodles for, like, $3.50 and a drink for one fifty and dessert for two fifty and um Yeah, so, so I would eat there all the time. Um, but when I first moved there, um, I wasn't used to the heat and the humidity. So my parents told me I would always complain when we weren't eating in an air-conditioned restaurant. <laughs> um, but then uh, I like grew to love it. And um, it's something I miss the most when I'm living here now. <laughs> and so tell me who the performers will be in Is Zhang Xin An. So... It's a one-woman show, so I'm performing it solo. Uh, I did write um, different characters into the show, so I play all of them. Uh, yeah. And tell me the different characters. Um, oh, there is a lot. So um, it's a lot of different stories from my life, some fictional, some not. Um, uh, so there's like the chicken rice uncle that is the main... Um, character that keeps appearing throughout the whole play. Um, and then, of course, like I, I wrote a lot of stories about uh, my family and um, growing up in school. And also, like when I moved to Canada, the people in my life. And so all these people that are, are in my stories, um, I play them as well. Um, I feel like there is upwards of 10, but I cannot be sure. <laughs> And so um, how has the rehearsal process been like? Oh, so we haven't started rehearsals yet. Uh, we start rehearsals in March, uh, at the beginning of March. So uh, right now it's been a lot of writing time. Uh, I spend a lot of time on my own, by myself, writing. Um, if not, I'm in the room with Jenna Rogers, who is the dramaturge and director of my show. Um, when I'm with her in the room... Uh, it's a lot of reading my script over and over again. Uh, we take apart my, we deconstruct the whole script, put it on post-its and build it back up again. And it's a lot of rewriting, reading. Um, very early on in the process, um, I did bring in a workshop actor. So my friend, uh, Bianca Miranda, she's um, she's not Singaporean, but she's Filipino. So she has an understanding of what my life was like. Um, so I thought she was a great fit. I couldn't find any other Singaporeans. So she was the closest fit I could find to be my workshop actor. And she would read the script for me, even though um, it's the character is me. Um, 
just so that I could focus on my role as a playwright. Um, but now that we're coming closer, especially in the last uh, last half of 2019, because we're coming closer to the production, I've been starting to do my own readings rather than having an actor do that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so how did you start as an artist? Um, I feel like I've always been somehow involved in theater since like a really young age. Um, and I've always been into like anything creative. Um, I loved performing from a young age. Uh, when my mom said like when I was three and we like would have guests over, I'd be like, "I'm gonna perform for you." <laughs> um, yeah, and I d- think I decided I wanted to do theater like when I was like really young, like when I was ten or twelve, something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> And where did you get your training? So I studied at the University of Calgary. I got a BFA in drama there. Um, I studied uh, acting, directing, performance creation. Um, I actually didn't do any playwriting in school. Um, I think I, yeah, what was um, really big for me for my degree, I think, was um, taking a performance creation class with Meg Chuba. Um it really gave me the tools to generate my own content and turn it into my own performance and create my own work rather than um, like performing pre-existing plays. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, uh, what prompted you to write this play? Uh, you know, Calgary is really white. Uh, I found it really hard um, when I moved here. And when I was still in school, like in university, to find my place as a person of color, as a Chinese woman, um, you know, in Singapore, I always felt like I wasn't Chinese enough. Um, but then when I moved here, like just because of my skin color, I felt like I was too Chinese for everyone around me. Um, there were no roles that were within the context of my lived experience. Um so like even something so basic as like looking for a monologue was really hard for like auditioning and stuff. Um, and there was nothing out there that I felt like I felt passionate about auditioning for um, because like there were just none of my story, like none of my lived experience was being reflected in like what was going on around me. Um, so... Yeah, when I first graduated, I remember like everyone was auditioning for Shakespeare by the Bow and I was just, I didn't feel like I wanted to do that. Like I don't enjoy Shakespeare. I um, just don't, it doesn't resonate with me. Um, and it, Yeah, and so when everyone was doing that, I ended up applying with uh, Swallow a Bicycle's site-specific series at the Ignite Festival. Um, and I ended up coming up with a 15-minute performance about, um, yeah, finding... It was, like, just a 15-minute storytelling thing. Um, it was outside in the trees. Um, I think I was part of that. I went. I you were there. The yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and um, it was just about, you know, finding comfort and space around where I am now in Calgary. And um, so that naturally leaned into stories about like my time in between Singapore and Canada. And uh, it was 15 minutes at first. And now it's been, I think that was in, that was in 2016 when I did that. Um, So it's grown into, I think a 
like it's probably about an hour now um and it's gone through so many different iterations um and i've performed different versions of it um yeah so i yeah it, it was just a response to like not feeling like i had space and like me writing this play was me carving out space for myself and giving myself an outlet to speak my own story yeah and so i guess um Tell me about chromatic theater. Uh, so chromatic theater is a Calgarian theater company that's dedicated to um, developing di uh, culturally diverse voices. Um, I first, I had met, so Jenna Rogers is the artistic director of chromatic theater, and I had met her briefly while I was still in university, um, but I really got to know her uh, when I started going for Reading Rainbow, uh, which is an initiative um, by chromatic theater where they gather, they make space for um, artists of color, so indigenous black people of color, to gather and read plays written by um, um, playwrights of color as well. Um, so... We're eating snacks in a room, we are reading in whatever accent we have, and there's no judgment. It's a safe space to just come as we are, read as we are, enjoy plays that are about people like ourselves, and we talk about it, and we build community with each other. Um, especially, like, I feel like a lot of us grew up, um, like, when we did university we were probably like the only people of color in our classes. So it's really nice to gather with other theater people or even people of other different artistic practices and and read 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 art about us. <laughs> okay. And so um what is next after this play you can talk about? Um I don't really know, to be honest. Um I know I want to continue developing um, give me chance, Lee. But I think I just need to focus on like premiering it in Calgary and then seeing if I want to edit it further. Um, it's definitely a goal of mine to tour it across Canada. Um, and also, I really want to bring it to Singapore. I want to like see if I could almost write a different version of it. So it's within, like, although the stories are about both Singapore and Canada right now, it's really geared towards. Um, the audience here in Calgary um, or in Canada in general. Um, but I want to see, like, you know, if I was performing this to an audience in Singapore, um, how can I deliver the same message um, but changing up the structure maybe? I, I, don't, I don't even know, like, what changes need to be made, but I just know, like, I feel like the version that is performed in that... The version that um, would be right for the Singaporean audiences would be different from um, the script as it is now. <laughs> uh, we pretty much uh, filled up all the time that I had um, set aside for this interview. Thank you very much, Chris, for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that was my interview with Chris Vanessa Teal. Her play, Warden Mingzi Si Zhang Sin An, Give Me Chancellor, will be performed March 25th to April 5th at Motel Theatre in Arts Commons. For tickets, call the Arts Common box office at 403-294-9494. Visit chromatictheater.ca for more information. Now is a song by Kenny Starr, Canadian singer-songwriter with her song La Le La La from her 2006 album called Anything.
was La Le La La by Kenny Starr, Canadian singer, songwriter, and hip-hop artist from her 2006 album, Anything. For the March episode of ArtsLink, I wanted to talk a little bit about getting started at whittling, woodcarving. Speaking personally, I have found it to be an antidote to keeping one's head down at various screens, and I've also enjoyed listening to the radio more. I believe it has something to do with the necessity of concentration at some basic level while leaving your higher faculties free to wander a little bit. I've also found that slowly making a specific form and function out of a randomish cylinder of uh, spruce branch really feels like an accomplishment when the tool or toy has proven itself. And talk about what a good problem to have. I've been trying to figure out how to replicate this carved wooden gizmo from a couple of quick videos I took camping last week. Unfortunately, they're very short, they're only from one angle, and uh, it leaves a little bit of imagination that uh, I have to use to be able to picture the rest of it, for God's sake. It has been an exercise in getting away from instant gratification, to be sure, and seeing something take form so deliberately gradually that trying to speed up the process merely results in fatigue and failure 
but if you're really good and lucky, maybe some insight of what to change for next time. In the case of this wooden contraption, it is basically like a, it's this close to being a Rube Goldberg machine, but basically it is a, a bow that you anchor to the ground and it fires downwards a little dowel that you've attached to the, uh, to the bow. Um, and then attached to that little dowel is kind of like a, a, a dull guillotine blade, I guess you could say. And it is meant to be a trap uh, meant for weasels, I'm told. So, you know, you, the thing will step on the trigger and it releases the little piece of wood, which then flies up and releases another piece of wood. And then the thing fires downwards. I mean, it's really uh, too complex. I mean, we're not talking about building a better mousetrap. We're talking about building like a, a, a prototype insane mousetrap. Um, and in attempting this reverse engineering, I have found the more mindless parts like the simple shaping of wood to be incredibly relaxing. I was able to pay more attention to good music, despite my focus being on the sharp knife I'm handling and the, uh, you know, the, the process that I'm trying to unfold. I imagine that people who knit and crochet can relate to this. And I've often seen people, you know, knitting and crocheting, you know, at performances or during uh, workshops. Um, and that's why I'm coming before the microphone today. I want to spread a little enthusiasm around for the pleasures of the handcrafts. George Carlin said that he only had interests, not hobbies, because hobbies cost money. The good news is that getting into wood carving is ridiculously cheap. In fact, the biggest stumbling block I've come across is the scarcity of available green wood in my area that is still living stuff. It has some, some bend to it. It's a little bit supple. Uh, I'll admit to eyeing up a neighbor's discarded Christmas tree of late, as you don't often see balsam fir in my neighborhood. But regardless, one thing I'll suggest to you to throw a modest amount of money at is your carving knife. And this is because of the specific simple edge, and we'll get into that, needed to shave wood. There is absolutely nothing stopping you from achieving success with a jackknife or anything you have lying around the house, but you'll really be working with a handicap because of the two bevels most knives have. They'll keep wanting to dig into the wood rather than shave it neatly. Simply put, if you were to draw a triangle and then erase the top tip of the triangle and then redraw the tip with a sharper point, that's what most knives we see have. Uh, what we want is a single beveled knife uh, or, or a Scandinavian grind. And that's the stuff that you see in products uh, like Mora knives from Sweden. And about 20 bucks gets you one. And this is where the ball really gets put in your court in terms of developing familiarity and skill. This is a knife that you'll really be able to put through the paces. I've cut down uh, wrist-thick aspen and black spruce with them. I've dug out uh, tent pegs that I foolishly drove too deep into frozen snow with them and uh, basically spent a week camping, wrecking them nonstop, but they both still shaved paper at the end of it. Again, these are $20 knives. So a word on safety and responsible knife use. I first off recommend without hesitation the book Northern Bushcraft by Morris Kahansky, a wilderness living skills and survival instructor specializing in our backyard, the boreal forest. It covers the various grips and methods to use to work wood safely. In fact, a lot of these techniques are simple mechanical fail-safes used with the position of your hands and body and the knife. Uh, for instance, what if you need to make a cut towards your other hand? Well, then you would limit the range of motion by anchoring your wrists to the abdomen, providing only a small amount of cutting uh, and uh, keeping from overcutting. Uh, you also get stuff like uh, you know splitting a, a, a piece of wood down the center while you want maybe to hold the knife at its blade so you're only able to push it a certain amount towards your palm, which really is a very secure feeling. Um, I'd also like to say that uh, wearing gloves, keeping first aid at the ready, and keeping yourself firmly planted in your chair is pretty important, I would say. Uh, don't ever hurry while using a blade. So get that safety stuff out of the way. 
uh, I mean, it may sound familiar and, uh, you know, tame to be saying all this stuff, but it is when extra force or speed is applied without proper concentration or consideration that cuts and failure happen. And don't you know it, there's always a path of least resistance to be found. This is what I have found for my own learning um, curve uh, to be the most useful. Uh, once you get these, you know, these uh, processes and procedures put in your mind sequentially, at least in my mind, uh, and redoing them, that's how I keep from failing. One of the most heated hints I got uh, was not to attack knots and wood uh, head on. So that'd be like you're trying to, uh, you know, scrape off the scrape off the uh, bark of a branch, but you have all these 90 degree juts coming out perpendicularly where the branches used to be, and they're hard to get at. You know, just try, trying to uh, to attack them head on with your knife. But so, uh, you know, developing little techniques that you might not think of, like rolling the branch back and forth, taking off a little bit at a time off the sides diagonally with your blade until the thing is nice and smooth. I mean, this is stuff that you know, took someone telling me that to, to learn. Uh, otherwise, I'd be sitting there sweating still. And you'll get to know these little shortcuts, especially through the practice of carving something called a tri-stick, on which you create different notches and holes on an arm-length branch. I'll include a link to a tri-stick tutorial on the Arts Link section of cgsw.com done by Morse Kahansky. Again, and I can't say this enough, this kind of work goes very well with listening to the radio. Just a few more random words and thoughts on knives and carving. I find it interesting that both carving wood and sharpening a blade is an exercise in gradual gratification, but in opposite ways. Having form slowly take shape through hundreds of tiny cuts in wood, or just wrecking the edge of your knife with sandpaper, then slowly bringing it back to a knife edge. And that's right, sandpaper. I did tell you this stuff was cost efficient. Because of the single bevel Scandinavian edge, it sits nice and flat, and sharpening can be learned easily with a little time and practice. All I use to rehab rehabilitate my knives are a cheap leather belt for a few quick strops and a small flat board of wood uh, with sandpaper taped to each side at uh, 320 and 600 grit. A pro tip that I have not yet put into use is finding discarded ceramic tile to use as a hone. Knowing how to work wood into shapes can be a confidence builder, and it also lends itself well to the world of bindcraft and working with knots. In my own case, you turn a knot upside down or backwards, I'm lost. I gotta learn it tactilely, and uh, working with wood and knots at the same time is kind of a neat little double edge. Uh, in my own case, having depleted the thick Y-staped sticks for my little uh, weasel trap by making my cuts for the rectangular notches too deep and then uh, having them uh, collapse, I'm now figuring out how to possibly tie some smaller, more robust sticks together for the same function. It's not working so far, but it will. So if this works properly, this is going to be how awesome it sounds when you're using a constrictor knot to bind two pieces of uh, slightly fresh wood together. And uh, I think if it cr uh, captures it properly, it's a very satisfying crushing wood sound, as you can just feel these things are going to become... Um, pretty impossibly inseparable. Uh, I've heard that the best way to untie a constrictor knot is with a knife. Here goes. So, you can see like a divot of nearly a half a centimeter in these two pieces of wood, and I can't even, I can't even rotate them. Uh, yeah, there we go, just a little bit. That is very satisfying. And again, this is what uh, handcrafting is all about for me, the satisfaction in uh, knowing that something is fixed and it's done and it's going to work and you can depend on it. Uh, that to me is what makes all the difference in this and I'm, uh, I'm happy to have uh, uh, brought a little bit of my interest to you, the listening audience today. Something that wasn't far from my mind and others uh, when we were practicing our carving 
uh, over the week that I went camping was the idea of the slowly but surely or the uh, the tiny flower that grows through and uh, cracks open through the uh, the concrete on our sidewalk. So I want to leave you today with a song that's about just that. I think it's quite beautiful. It's uh, from Rose Kemp off of her album A Handful of Hurricanes. This is Tiny Flower. Sometimes you feel like a tiny flower. Sometimes up through the pavement. you feel like a tiny tired and weary. Though your back is breaking through the pavement. Tiny Flower by Rose Kemp. That's it for this month's Arts Link. We'll talk to you folks again in April.